This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Michael Tubbs. Michael served as the mayor of Stockton, California. He was the city's first black mayor and the youngest ever mayor of a major American city. He is the founder of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income and Ending Poverty in California, a special advisor to California Governor Newsom on economic mobility, and a commentator for MSNBC. His new book, The Deeper the Roots, is now available. Finally, towards the end of that year, I, I realized I wanted to do something. So I made the crazy decision as a senior in college to run for city council. Um, that, that decision was unlikely for a couple reasons, and not just my age. You see, my family is far from a political dynasty. For too long, this country has an antagonistic relationship to the poor, to the less fortunate. I think they almost think it's like some kind of disease that you can catch, or it's a disease of laziness. Well, out with the incumbent and in with the future, Michael Tubbs wins Stockton's mayoral race in a landslide, and the 26-year-old becomes one of the youngest mayors in the country. For those viewers who don't know you and your story, I, I, I think when reading your list of achievements, they'll come to understand why somebody's making a documentary about your life. Hello, I'm Michael Tubbs. I want to eliminate poverty. Sorry, not sorry. Michael, I mean, you and I have something in common because I also want to eliminate poverty. And I'm going to just start right out with your new book, The Deeper the Roots. Early on, you share a line that you wrote as a young man, which I think is so incredibly powerful. And it says, the first time I saw my father, he was chained. Tell us about your father and about how you came to write about him. Thank you so much for having me. And my father's name is also Michael Tubbs. And oftentimes growing up, I would make up stories about where he was since him and my mom worked together. So depending on the day, either he had passed away, which is looking back on now, it's a terrible lie to share about anyone or that he was out of state or that I didn't know anything about him. But the reality was he's been incarcerated my entire life. He was 
17 when I was born. And at that time, he was in the juvenile detention facility. He found out my first visit to him as a baby, as a two-week-old, was in the juvenile detention facility in, 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 in Stockton, California, where, where I'm born and raised. And so our, my life and our relationship has been through like letters um, that occasionally I wouldn't answer or phone calls. And the occasional visit, including the one I remember most vividly, which was when I was 12 years old and had some idea of what I want to talk about, had some idea of what I thought I was missing. And I think now as a father myself and as a policymaker, I have a much more nuanced and empathetic view of my father than the one I had when I was in high school or in middle school. Tell us about what it was versus what it is now. Yeah, when it was, I just thought, you know, when you're a kid, you just ascribe the worst thinking to what your parents are, have done. Maybe you really care that he had a son. Maybe he, it was easier for him to not be a father and to continue in activities that were illegal. Or maybe he's just a terrible person, and that's why he was in prison. Maybe it was good that he was in prison, so he couldn't harm anyone, right? Maybe it's his fault. But now as a father, and just looking back at how much he wrote and how much he called, I realized it must have been incredibly difficult to be away from his child, that he's not a terrible person, but just made a couple bad decisions and and bad decisions in the context of a policy environment where bad decisions would get you 25 to life under the three strikes law. Well, if those decisions were made today, his sentence would probably be more lenient, right? And also just a more nuanced view that it's not just all his fault. It's also about sort of the environment in which those choices took place in and how we as a society just throw some people away after a mistake or, or a bad decision. Can you talk a little bit to the fact how poverty is trauma, first of all, and how that be- can become so cyclical? I first knew this as growing up in poverty and having adults who are struggling with scarcity struggling with, can I pay this, can I pay that, struggling with having to work all the time. And it's been corroborated by scientific evidence. We're literally an adverse childhood experience that in terms of the screenings doctors do when babies are born is, are they in poverty? Are they in a condition of lack? And also the research about how it impacts brain development, how it impacts cortisol levels, how it impacts executive functioning, how it impacts the ability to plan years in advance. It's incredibly traumatic. And it compounds. And that, I think that's part of why we see the intergenerational transfer of poverty. When you live in a poor neighborhood, you're living in an area where you have to have poor schools. When you have poor schools, you have poor teachers. When you have poor teachers, you get a poor education. Poor education, you can only work on a poor paying job. And that poor paying job enables you to live again in a poor neighborhood. So it's a very vicious cycle. The impact of the trauma and and poverty happens not just in a household, but in the context of a neighborhood, in the context of a community, in the context of a place. So if you're born in poverty, nine times out of 10, you don't go to a great school. You go to a school with concentrated poverty. You go, you live in a neighborhood with poverty jobs that pay poverty wages if they're jobs at all. And that not only concentrates the poverty, but calcifies it, which is why it's passed down like an heirloom, but it's passed down. Because the environmental factors that contribute to poverty aren't changed. And they also, I would argue, contribute to the poverty staying endemic. And of course, a lot of you and who you are as a person has a lot to do with the women who helped raise you. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the women who raised you? I am the product of three phenomenal Black women who are just great, but also just incredibly ordinary, like regular people you work with or they go to church with, et cetera. Starting with my mom who had me as a teenager. She was 16 when she was pregnant with me. And despite all that, I never saw her make excuses. She never threw pity parties. I never saw her take a day off work that wasn't to help me because I was sick or to take me to a field trip. Um, it's incredibly strong and resilient. It really instilled in me a, a, a sense of self that sort of our environment wasn't my fault and our environment wasn't my future, that there was something bigger for me and that she was the original tiger mom and was going to make sure that nothing was going to dissuade me from that notion. And then my aunt, who's my mom's older sister, who's also like a mom to me, was just an incredible, more softer than my mom. My mom's not a warm and fuzzy person at all. Um, but my my aunt is very warm and fuzzy. She's a big crybaby, super open with her emotions. Um, and she was also just a great compliment. And she was also very social in the way that I'm social. It was fun going to events and things with her and meeting her friends and her network. She was the team mom for my basketball teams. She would like take all of us to practice and stuff. And then my grandmother is the matriarch and like the spiritual sort of foundation of the family. So she always had us in church. She was always praying for our craziness. And she also always modeled service. So it wasn't until I got older where I realized that I literally spent every month in convalescent homes as a kid, like a 10, 11, 12 year old working with people in the convalescent homes, visiting them talking to them because maybe their family couldn't come see them. And we just did that as part of what we did. And she was a social worker, but she decided to leave a government building and do her social work at a community center. But it was a community center, like a not so great place necessarily. And she just did that. No fanfare, no tweets about it. She just did it. And I had no idea it was a big deal until I became council person. And that community center was like the focal point of the work I did as a council member. That's where I would go and have meetings. That's where I would go to have office hours. That was where I would go to have my non-government office. I was like, oh, wow, Grandma, Nana, you were already doing this. And she's not a big deal. She's doing my job. I just wanted to get out the office. I wanted to be close to the people. So I think from all of them, I've been so blessed to learn so much. It's so interesting when you get old enough to reflect back on who gave you what in your in your family. Like I can look and very distinctly say my grandmother gave me this part of me. And it's such a I don't know, I find a lot of solace in it in a way. And then the idea that we can also inherit the trauma from our families. And that's also something that's so fascinating to me. And I've been meaning to my grandmother is still alive. She's 95 years old. She just quit smoking. Oh my gosh. I'm not kidding. And she had a lot of trauma in her life. Helen, I called her Nanny Honey. She had a lot of trauma. My mom had a lot of childhood trauma. And I've been meaning to write my grandmother a letter just saying, we did it. We broke it. We broke the cycle. We broke the cycle of poverty. We broke the cycle of violence that was in our family. And I'm in this place where I know that I have to do it because obviously she's 95, but it feels like such a hard thing to sit down and do, like to actually just motivate myself to do. So I will let you know. I'll text you if I wind up doing it. You write that your dreams were incubated in the disappointments and nightmares of your parents. 
What do you mean by that? It was particularly from my mom and seeing how she was denied jobs she could do because she didn't have a college degree. She didn't have a college degree because she made the decision to have me so young and never find the time to go back to school. And that made me think, okay, there's substitute. She actually made me promise her that I would get my education. So that part of that. And also she just had a vision for, I remember, and I'll talk about this in the book, there's a time where we were homeless and, and living in a motel. And she would sit me by the pool and say, you know, we're not, we don't live here. We're just on a vacation. When my dad left, he, we were struggling a lot because my mom is disabled and she can't get a job to help to pay for the bills, get food. I lost a lot of weight. I remember I, I used to be a size five and I went from a size five to a size zero. I try to not eat too much. I try to eat in school. There was nights where we didn't have anything to put in our stomachs. You'll have a pool in your house. So having visions of, okay, I need to have a pool in my backyard so my mom could come by and, 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 and relax. And, and so, and then also from my father, just from not any explicit conversation, but just thinking like, he's been so confined. He hasn't had a chance to really contribute to the world or to enjoy the fullness of the world. And how I just have such a zest for life. I want to do everything. You mentioned earlier about how you don't like to be bored. Me either. I want to experience everything. I want to do everything. I, I think part of my claustrophobia comes from just my dad being in prison and just not wanting to feel boxed in, not wanting to feel caged, but wanting to feel free and open. So it's really from... That's that generational trauma. Yeah. I think it's from those two experiences where I'm just like, that's where a lot of my dreams have come from. Just the idea of having agency, having the ability to breathe and not... And even just watching how hard my mom worked. She's now at the point of her life where she's taking time off to go on vacation, where she's able to travel, where she's able to come and spend time with her grandkids and not worry about work. But growing up, I, I, I never saw her take a mental health day. I never saw her go to the spa, get her nails done, get a massage. It was all work. And I was like, I don't want to live. I don't want to be an adult. And that's all I do. And 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 that's all I have to do to survive. I want to be in a position where I can enjoy life too. So many people are not in that position because they have to work, work, work to make ends meet and to put food on the table. I think this idea of self-care is such a new idea. I remember even when I just first had started working with my therapist, whom I love dearly, but Our first conversation, he was like, so what do you do for self-care? And I was like, dude, self-care is a fucking privilege. Do women in Ghana have self-care days? Do they do things for self-care? You know, I got so irate at this idea that it was not only okay, but it was expected of me to take this time off. And I got to tell you, there's something to the self-care thing (laughs) because Since I've been paying more attention to my body and the moments that I need to just turn off. I'm glad you did that. But I also think your wider point is a good one, which is why the work we do is so important. That sort of rest and recharging yourself. And it's not even just recharging yourself for the act of recharging, which is valid. But even even how we're talking about it, it's like recharging ourselves to go back and, and to do work. And That should be something everyone has the opportunity to do because it actually makes everyone more productive. It actually makes everyone better. So what exactly is self-care? 
Definitions vary, but self-care is any activity that we deliberately do in order to take care of our mental, emotional, and physical health, the practice of taking care of one's own physical and emotional needs with the goals of remaining healthy and resilient. And if you're healthy and resilient, then you're better able to care for others. So as we think about what self-care means with this backdrop of 80,000 things you can buy on um, Amazon, I think the first step is to really prioritize self-care and to revise one's views about it, to realize how powerful and vital it is. Taking care of ourselves is a basic human need. It's not a weakness. It's also not selfish. That's why our insistence on, like, your advocacy for dignity for all people, the, the work we do on guaranteed income, all that stuff is important to create the society where Taking care of yourself isn't a luxury, but it's just like, I'm laughing saying it because it's such a crazy statement, but. It's such a crazy thing that we have to advocate for. It's so hurtful. And I, when I think about, again, that family of four that's working, you know, the parents are working four jobs between them and the kids are coming home and they live in a food desert. There's no clean water. I mean, who are we? And what are we as a country if we're not able to give people just the fundamentals so that they can have an afternoon where they don't feel like they have to. I don't know. It's I'm so happy that you're doing this work. And I want to switch gears a little bit to your faith because it is a theme that runs through your book alongside storytelling, which obviously being a storyteller myself, I love this aspect of your book. I guess the question is, how does your faith inform the way you think about the world and the stories of the people who live in it. Yeah. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but it wasn't until I got to college where I realized that being a Christian had bad connotations for people and that being Christian was associated with like domination and white supremacy and exclusion and marginalization and, and oppression. Because sort of the faith I had been taught growing up was one of like love and one of like liberation and one of service and one of your job on this earth is to make this work more in line with the world that sees the beauty in all of God's children. For me, my faith really is the grounding that gives me the confidence to advocate. I, I think sort of in the advocacy for things like basic income and dignity for all people. I'm like, I'm, I'm, this is a, spiritual law. This is not even, this is above this sort of man-made construct. And I think that's why I can be so bold and, and can be focused and determined. It's like, no, you guys, this is what it's meant to be. Like, this is not some left or right thing. For me, it takes a little bit of elevated discourse. And I also think that when times are rough and when things are, don't go as well, even from the time I was a child, it was, it's been a helpful muse for reflection. And to think, so I think it's hard, particularly when bad things happen, I shudder to think what it would be like to believe that there was no purpose to it, that bad things just happened. That seems to, that would be so, for me, draining and dehabilitating, and it caused me to give up. I'm like, what's the point? But like, my faith is like, okay, this is terrible. This is not ideal, but it must be getting us closer to something, or there must be a lesson here, or there's something here that I may not figure out next year may take some time. And I think that's what I enjoy about writing the book because looking backward, I was able to see how all these little things, even the painful things, like the trauma 
of poverty and that's romanticizing at all. But all those things, looking back, I'm like, they weren't ideal, but they were a great preparation for me in terms of what I, what I, what I'm doing. And I didn't see that when I, when it was happening. So I think my faith also helps me believe that what's happening now is connecting to something forward. That's going to make sense (laughs) when I get there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I completely understand that feeling. And in the book, you talk about discovering a love of books at a young age. I want you just briefly to tell my audience about what storytelling has meant to you in your life and the power of storytelling. Storytelling has been almost fundamental to my life. As my wife says, the same five facts, same five stories my family tells. I actually made it easy to write the book because even like a lot of the things I didn't have to go back to them because they had passed on like the circumstances of my birth or certain things just became like family lore. In church, it was fundamentally about telling stories, telling a story of the moment, interpreting stories from the past, painting a story of the future. And then as a nerd, I used to love reading used to love reading. I still love reading, but back then I would carve out hours and days just to do nothing but read. And what I appreciate about the books I read, fiction and nonfiction, is that they just gave me an idea of a place where the protagonist had real agency, where there was a happy ending, where there was more than disappointment and more than despair. There were lessons and fundamentals that could be drawn and taken. They're also like an escape to a different place. I used to love reading the Madeline Engel books. And not just The Wrinkle in Time, but the Swiftly Tilting Planet. And there's a bunch of them. And as a kid, going to the mitochondria, like, I just really enjoyed being able to get away <laughs> and to think and, and to see. In my role as elected official, I realized the best, most powerful thing I could do was tell stories about my constituents, tell stories about the city. And tell stories, I paint a vision of going forward. So I think storytelling is fundamental to the human experience. And part of what I was hoping to do with the book is to tell a nuanced story of like single parenthood, of cities like Stockton, of incarceration, of politics, of becoming a man and use my story as a medium to do that. Also, I just think it gives us such a great foundation for creative problem solving that is so vital. Absolutely. I think it's because it's so removed from the mundane of what's present or what's real. It gives us a chance to reflect and think and be creative and to see connections and see points that we might not have considered and that we're not 
being able to be as objective and to watch or to learn or to receive. For me, being a progressive Christian means that I'm always in this tension of fighting for the church and with the church. And when you have issues like we have with immigration or with survivors of sexual assault, with racism, you have an opportunity to step into those, but it's really difficult to, to weed through that tension. I think often about, you know, because the advocacy work and the activism that I do is so much on the outside of the people that move in those spaces that are very specific to that space. And what I mean by that is there's your environmentalists that work in climate change. There is uh, your gun violence prevention advocates that work in, in that area. To see this perspective as an outsider of all of these issues and how it can get very, as you're looking in, you can see the calcification of the way they do things. And they're almost reluctant to see outside of one way is the only way it's going to get done. And it's, I think, why I have had the success that I've had in that space is because I, I'm like, let's think outside the box here for a second. And I think it's so important, especially in activism and advocacy, to tell stories because there is nothing, nothing that can change hearts and minds like stories, especially if they're stories that have no political affiliation, especially stories that come from just the human place. And I think it's so important. It's so important. You're also super honest about your experiences in school, and you sort of run the gamut of struggles <laughs> and successes, which is incredible. And I'd love for you to share some of that with my listeners. Yeah, I had the most sort of polarizing experience in school in that I've always done well in school. I've always had really great grades, but I've also always struggled with teachers, and I've always been kicked out of class, like literally from... I think it was sixth grade or fifth grade, my desk was outside the classroom. My desk was literally in the hallway. Can you picture that? Like you have all these kids in class. And like, Why? I'm in the hallway, still raising my hand, still trying to purchase. <laughs> Wait, what, but what put you in the hallway? I, well, looking back now, and as someone who became a teacher myself, I had a lot of energy. I had a lot of enthusiasm. I would read ahead. I would work ahead. I wasn't like docile and easy. I was like, you had to put in energy to, to, to educate me. And I think particularly in the school environments and classrooms I was in, I was usually like the only Black kid or the only Black male in class. And I think for a lot of teachers, they just weren't used to teaching someone like me. And, and, and then I just wasn't quiet, but I wasn't like not, I cared about the work and I was challenging. And I think for some, so I just thought it's easier to sit remove. And that's the benign ones. But I had also some teachers that when I talk about this in the book that were like explicitly racist, where I just like watch civil rights investigations <laughs> about my grades. And I, I think sort of those experiences were formative in that they gave me a years of experience of fighting against and organizing and, and getting to an outcome, which is a, a grade or a college admissions that was a prelude to the work I do now. But also made me really see that education is such a powerful driver. And we did a better job of equipping teachers with the skills and the resources and the training to see all kids as having the potential to be a mayor or all kids having the potential to be an author. 
then maybe we'll see some things that are different. It's not all on schools, but schools have such a big role. And I just saw how my classmates reacted differently. So like for other kids, if they got kicked out of their class for no reason, they just say, I'm not, I don't care. But for me, it was like, okay, I'm happy to leave, but what's the assignment for today? I have to make sure I get this work done, right? And I think that's also, I think, an unrealistic burden to put on any 14, 15-year-old, particularly when you're, like, adolescence is hard enough. Becoming an adult is hard enough. Dealing with puberty is hard enough. And then to, on, on top of that, dealing with authority figures who are supposed to be educating you who are constantly kicking you out, constantly telling you you're less than, constantly saying you're not wanted in the space. That's just a lot to grapple with and no child should have to. I just think about how, I mean, you just came out who you are. You know what I mean? Which is, as a parent also, there I find a lot of solace in that. And I look at my kids sometimes, I'm like, what the... F-? And mind you, my lived experience, their lived experience is very different than your lived experience. And I cannot imagine having to investigate with a civil rights attorney to figure out why you got certain grades like that. I will never understand. You know, I look at my kids sometimes and I go, you know what? There's there's certain things that I could guide them with, and but they just came out who they are. And I feel like if you had the wherewithal to be, oh, you're kicking me out? Okay, I'll, I'll sit out here, but you just got to tell me what the assignment is because I obviously need to prove you wrong or whatever your motivation was. In 2016, researchers at Yale showed teachers this video clip of four preschool students. Their instructions, look for misbehavior and click when you see it. The study was kind of deceptive. None of the kids in the video actually misbehaved. The researchers were using eye tracking software. What they actually wanted to study was who the teachers were watching. Both black and white teachers spent significantly more time watching the black boy in the video. This study showed that even preschool teachers can treat kids differently based on their race without even realizing it. That, I have to believe that is just innately who you are as a human being. Yeah, I think a lot of, some of it's innate, but I think a lot of it was my mother's not stamping that out of me. I think there's also a temptation to be like, look, just go along, just like, just calm down. But they never told me to be different. They never told, I mean, they, they told me to stop talking back so much. <laughs> and they told me to learn how to play the game, but they never tried to stamp out that part of me, but they really found other outlets for it. So, okay, let's get you involved in some leadership stuff outside of school. Okay, let's get you, let's make sure that every time you're called upon to speak at church that you're prepared. And I think they saw sort of, even if they didn't understand, they saw there was like some, a fighter. They were like, okay. We're not going to stumble. And then, and then they would always advocate for me. So if I would go home and say I was unfairly kicked out of class or anything, the next day they would come up to school and have a conversation with the teacher. So they would know that, no, this is not, this kid's parents cares. This kid's parents involved. And that was just so, even when I was wrong, like even times I was like, no, I actually did something wrong. They would still make sure to go up there and have a conversation. And, and I think showing me that, no, you're worth fighting for. And that as you become an adult, like we have your back. And I think that was incredibly helpful because it, it let me see that there's nothing wrong with me. Like I'm not the issue. We have to change this room so I, they, so that I fit, but I don't need to shrink. But they never told me, stop raising your hand. They never said, stop answering questions. They never said, I wish instead of 
correcting the teacher in front of the class, why not try correcting the teacher after? Or instead of, um, why don't you give her a chance, raise your hand once, and then if she doesn't call you, then you should probably speak out so she knows your hand is raised. But they never were like, oh my gosh, we are so tired of coming up here. Mm. And I realized now that was such a blessing because I would be tired because <laughs> they literally... So they would sit, my grandma would sometimes sit in class <laughs> with me so oh she could gosh. observe and see what was so, so I would be oh. on my best behavior and the teacher would be on their best behavior, but they work. So they, and then they have paid time off. So they're literally just losing money to come up to the school and make sure that people knew that this is our son and we care. It's, inc- it's incredible. And it, it really just completely embodies what being a parent should be, I think no matter what the person's difference is. I was dyslexic. And so I had like my own set of issues in a classroom. And I think school is just such a weird thing because it's not, we all have to do it, but it's not for everyone. And it's like literally designed for one, like the norm. And there's so many outliers. And the outliers are just like in the principal's office or cutting class or like not going. And it's, everybody learns differently. And yet we're still using phrases like learning disability instead of learning difference. It is incredibly frustrating. And there's been a lot of advocacy work recently that I've actually turned down because I'm like, why are you still calling this a disability? Can't we call it a difference specific to dyslexia, which I don't know. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing. And I didn't go to college. Actually, I don't think anyone from my family has gone to college. My husband's side, they all went to college. They're, they'd still be in college if, if they didn't have to work. That's my wife's side of the family. Yeah, they love like college. They're all like and lawyers and stuff. I'm yeah. Like, oh my God. So when you were in college, the police chief of Palo Alto called on his officers to racially profile black men. Tell us about that and tell us about your response to that. What's interesting, even in 2008, she was a woman police chief. Uh, a white woman police chief in Palo Alto. It was my first like month of school and I'm watching the TV and she gets on the news and she says, this is a whole different time. It's eerie how different and brazen, but that's how similar it is to what we're talking about today. So she gets on TV and she says, there's been 10 robberies committed in Palo Alto. Six of them have been committed by black men. So I've instructed my officers to stop every Black man they see walking down the street, you know, is to ask them, like, what are they doing here? Do they need help with anything? Particularly those wearing do-rag. Okay. Our desired goals is, one, to bring awareness to both communities that racial profiling is unacceptable. We've spoken to the chief of police. She has apologized. We understand that. But this issue is actually bigger than the chief of police. This is the beginning of a process of sitting down with Palo Alto and figuring out how we can fix this long-standing problem, okay? I remember sitting there and I was like, oh, hell no. Because part of it was, I really internalized the message that Stanford was my home. And I was like, I'm not going to be walking around my home and be questioned whether I should be here. Like, absolutely not. So I sent this email out in the Stanford chat list with 18-year-old passion and misspellings about how we had to do something. And I had known just from work in Stockton as a high schooler that city council meetings were on Tuesday and that there was a comment section called public comment. So I said, look, we go to the council meeting. There's a section called public comment. We'll all speak. Bam, here's how we do it. 
And all these upper classmen were like, yeah, let's do it. So the BSU president got us a bus. We took a bus from Stanford to the city council meetings, like 50 Stanford students. I was the closing speaker to wrap up our arguments and articulate sort of our demands. Next thing I know, we're in meetings with the city manager. The police chief resigns. And we're in meetings with the police, city manager talking about police reform. And it was fascinating because a lot of the conversations we had in 08 are conversations I was part of when I was a city council person mayor. It was about what's your diversity training look like. And at the time, their diversity training was going to the Holocaust Museum and watching the movie Crash. And that was the extent. And I was like, wait, that can't be the extent of your training. And then they would speak like government folks speak in platitudes and try to placate us and make us feel good. And like they would pick one of us to communicate with because she was the nicest and exclude all of us. And I really understood then that my job in the meeting was to just keep the ball moving. So I would always say things like, if I win, who's doing that? Are you responsible for that? And then finally, the city manager looked at me, exacerbated. He was like, exasperate, excuse me. He was like, I see why you're here. You're just here to ask tough questions. Because I was always like, who's doing that? If I win, okay. But next week, two weeks from now. And it was just such a great precursor to what I would do after college. But I had no idea. I just was not about to get racially profiled in Palo Alto. So we made all these police reforms. We had a task force for a year. We helped like community policing in Palo Alto, et cetera. We looked at traffic stops. We did all this amazing work while being college students. And it was such a, and that's when I found my voice in college. And I was like, I may not be like a scientific genius, but I know how to move people. And I know how to get some, like talk about policy and communicate. And from that first month on, I was just a, a problem. I love how you just said that's when you found your voice was in college, but yet you were the guy with uh, at the desk outside the classroom. No, that's why I meant that's why I found my voice in college. Cause I was really scared going to Stanford. I thought, yeah, I thought everybody was like going to be way smarter than me. And I was just sound dumb and I had nothing to offer. So I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to get my degree and get out of here. I can't believe you would ever feel that way. You were the youngest mayor of Stockton, California. Why did you seek that job? It started actually when I was on city council. So in college, I had no intention of going back to Stanford. I mean, to Stockton, excuse me. And then my cousin was murdered in a homicide. It was that murder that made me think about, okay, I need to do something with all this anger and all the survivor's guilt. And they can't be turned inward and be self-destructive. Like maybe there's a purpose for this. Back to the faith question. So I said, okay, I'm running for city council. And everyone thought I was crazy because I was. I had no political experience, no money, 21 years old, city council. And at the time, Stockton had declared bankruptcy. We were the most violent city in the country. This wasn't the ideal time to make a political debut. But on city council, I we were getting things done. I helped create an office of violence prevention with the police chief. I helped bring in a bank to my district, a health clinic, closed on problem liquor store. Think people were seeing me as a leader around the community. The business council wanted me to run for mayor. The police chief wanted me to run for mayor. And I was like, wow, if the police chief and the business council want the young Black guy to run for mayor, I definitely have a chance because no one sees this coming. So I decided to run for mayor to really deepen impact and understanding that the most important job of the mayor is to set the priorities like what the political conversation is, and to really be the face and the ambassador of the city to the city and externally. So that's why I decided to run for mayor. I was 25 when I announced I was running, and it was a bit of a risk because I was the last entrant into the race, given my propensity for, for being late. But also, 
my council seat was termed up. So it wasn't as if if I lost, I could still be on city council. It was win or go home. It was win, win or find something else to do. And a lot of people were like, you should just run for your council seat again. You're young. You can always be mayor. And a lot of people were like, you should um, run for county supervisors for some council district. And it makes more money. And you can do that for eight years. And mayor's is such a tough job. There's no win there. There's no one's ever been successful in this role. And again, being crazy, but also being really serious about being purpose-driven and being really aligned with what I think it is I'm supposed to do. I said, no, you guys, I'm I'm supposed to run for mayor. I feel like I'm supposed to run for mayor. And then I ran. And you won. And I won. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You mentioned that the police chief was supportive of your run. And yet one of the things that I remember from your reelection campaign was the opposition from the police union. And I think we are seeing these particular unions around the country really like digging in and fighting against change and change makers. So what effect did that have on your administration and your campaign? And what should police unions be doing? I don't think police unions should exist in the same way as other labor unions for a variety of reasons in in that I think their power is used not just to collectively bargain, but to collectively hold reforms hostage in terms of like qualified immunity, in terms of all the other things that, that need to be done. Before any proposed policing reforms can actually go into effect, lawmakers and department chiefs would first have to get past police unions. Over the course of decades, police unions have fought to secure generous benefits for rank-and-file officers and helped make the dangerous job of police work more attractive to hundreds of thousands of officers. But when their members come under scrutiny for police brutality and heavy-handed tactics, it's the union that often serves as their first line of defense. Perpetuated a false narrative and anti-police rhetoric, but everybody needs to remember police officers are are here to help. Police unions are not above the law in the same way police are not above the law. There's no exception to the rule here that should be applicable for police union leadership. It was interesting because people in Stockton were confused. They were like, well, the police chief doesn't like him. I was like, no, no, me and the police chief worked very closely together. And what happened was the month before the endorsement interviews, the police union board shifted to all the people that had been disciplined under our reforms and that you couldn't be problematic. And that became the police union board. And, and I remember going in to meet with them and seeing Trump flags in the cars in the parking lot. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be interesting. You know, so I think part of it was that it was scary. for The change, I think, was scary for them. You had this young Black mayor. You had this very progressive police chief. You had this very diverse community. 
you had the nation grappling with sort of Black Lives Matter the whole time, grappling with sort of extrajudicial killings of, of Black folks by police officers. And a lot of these change was happening. And I think part of it was also because my voice wasn't just local. So they knew I was on the Post Commission. I was on the Police Officer Standards Commission for California, helping set the standards for what officers should do. And I was saying things like, we should have a decertification process for a police officer. So if they do something bad, they can no longer be police officers. I was saying, like, I support ending qualified immunity. I think that made them very upset because they also understood that people might be listening. And we saw, like, this last budget, this last cycle, where um, decertification of officers was passed in the state. So long answer to say, I think it's just the pace of change. I think it's who was doing the change because... The change is still happening. It hasn't been undone. No, I'm not mayor. But the police chief is retiring this year. And he's like, he said, I did what I could do. There's a leadership change. I, it's time for me to move on and do something else. And I think that goes to show you that what probably starts a good idea, like all workers should have the ability to collectively bargain. I, I do agree with that. But there has to be a way to curtail the power of police unions because there are making it difficult to do the things necessary to create safety, which is what they're designed to do. You've been in the mayor's chair. So I'm wondering from your perspective, from what you've seen, and it doesn't have to be unique to Stockton, what are some of the most pressing problems facing cities and towns in America right now? I think the biggest problem is poverty and the way poverty is concentrated and particularly with COVID-19 and, and, and rising prices for cost of living rising, goods rising, housing rising, wages not, like economic insecurity and poverty is tied into the homelessness issue, as everyone complains about, is tied into the crime issue and the violent crime issue and the gun violence issue people complain about. It's tied into the educational attainment issues. It's tied into the economic development efforts. Like I think it all stems from the opportunity structure in certain neighborhoods and cities and, and really thinking through. And part of the difficulty is that the city can't solve it by itself. It takes city, county, state, national, private sector, family. It takes it literally takes all hands-on approach, which I think is why change is elusive. I think the second most pressing concern is disinformation. It's that even when doing that hard work, it's hard to do it where people are saying the sky is purple and people are being fed that day after day through Facebook, through Instagram, through social media. How do you think, how can we beat that? I actually just retweeted a report because the Aspen's to got a bunch of smart people together for a year to think about that. So I'm going to read that report and I hope there's some answers there. But I think it fundamentally starts with holding bad actors accountable, holding bad actors, whether it's the social media companies and the individual actors really accountable not for free speech, but for the harm that's created by intentionally misinforming people, by the amount of people who took crazy COVID medicine because of disinformation, by the amount of people who have died. As the coronavirus spreads around the world, so too has misinformation about the disease. The Washington Post obtained a new U.S. report. It says millions of false tweets have peddled conspiracy theories about coronavirus in other countries. The report did not include the United States, but found some of the misinformation may have been coordinated. Because of disinformation on Facebook. And, 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 and that's a, there's a real quantifiable impact in holding people accountable for for that, particularly when it's like knowingly and intentionally and it's manipulated using ad revenue and the algorithm to feed this poison 
the people who are predisposed to believe these lies. That's part of it. And I think more nuance or more prescriptive solutions I hope to have after I read a couple of these reports. An interesting idea when you're talking about universal base income was that, and I think Andrew Yang made the connection effectively, which was if these social media companies are going to mine our lives for their data, for our data, and then profit off of that data, and then potentially spread disinformation based on whatever data we're absorbing, then the universal based income should actually be coming from that data mining. Having that money come from Facebook, having that money come from Twitter, where they're actually giving us money for the information that they are basically raping us for. A million percent. There has to be some sort of data dividend and data tax. I am 100% in agreement with that. I think it's the next step. And I think it should be a no-brainer. And maybe now that we're that Build Back Better has passed and we're getting more used to this idea of taxing the mega wealthy, maybe this will also be or fall under that umbrella and be more digestible for people to understand. I want to ask you, we only have time for a couple of more questions, but I think this one is important. And then my last one is always important. What to you, what's the most important lesson you want readers to take away from your book and your life story? Most important lesson, there's a couple of them, I'll be quick. Number one, the impact of caring adults, the impact of authority figures who love and see and affirm and advocate and how that has ripple effects that can create great impacts even, even beyond what you think. And number two, I think troubling this notion of exceptionalism and really asking like, wow, how many Michael Tubbs-like people are we missing because we have underfunded schools, because we have a terrible incarceration system, because we have so much pervasive poverty. Like, how are we all losing in that we get to highlight one story where there could be hundreds of thousands of millions of stories, provided everyone got real opportunity? And lastly, that change is hard. Like, change is not inevitable. Change is difficult. And, but change only happens when you decide to do something. Like, like it doesn't just happen. Like you have to exert agency. And we all, whether we're a mayor, whether we're a council member, no matter who we are, we all have a role to play in creating the societies, the society, excuse me, that we want to live in. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope are my two children, two years old and 11 weeks old. And they give me so much hope because they wake up every day, they're laughing, they're developing, they're, they have such faith that there's going to be a planet, that, that climate change is going to be rectified and solved. And they give me hope because I think every birth represents a survival of innocence, an idea of a tomorrow that's different and brighter. So the fact that they're still here and they're still happy and they're not stressed and they're not worried. And they're the ones that inhabit this world. Gives me hope to make sure that their faith in me and others being good ancestors is well placed, <laughs> and that they shouldn't worry because we got it in the present to build the tomorrow they deserve. Michael Tubbs, you give me hope. This conversation gave me so much hope. We talked about self care before. This conversation was like self care for me. So thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. No, thank you for all you do and all you will do. And I appreciate you having me. Hi, I'm Caroline Ratcliffe, 
Senior Fellow and Economist at the Urban Institute. Opportunity is the vital ingredient for success in America, but opportunities are not equal for all. This is especially true for children who are born into poverty. Roughly half of poor newborns will be persistently poor, meaning they will spend at least half of their childhood living below the poverty line. And the consequences can continue into adulthood. Persistently poor children are 23 times more likely than children who are never poor to spend half of their early adult years living below the poverty line. Looking at patterns over four decades, we can see that many American families are caught in a vicious circle that keeps them trapped in poverty generation after generation. There is a power in stories. I've said this before, and it is still true. Nothing can change the world like art. Books, paintings, performance. They are the cultural touchstones that start conversations spark new ideas, forge connections, and drive change. And we need so much change. I'm worried for the future of our country. I'm worried that we've lost the ability to distinguish between art and lies. Recently, I watched Kevin McCarthy stand on the House floor for hours and spew nothing but lies about the Build Back Better bill. His colleagues in the House, the Biden administration, and the Speaker of the House. He stood behind a censured member of his party who shared a video depicting him killing another member of Congress. And I'm worried that much of the country thinks this is art. It just isn't. It's a pile of lies. Art works because it exposes truths about us we might not have known existed. Michael Tubbs book is art. We need to be better as a culture in learning the difference between the Kevin McCarthy's of the world and the artists. The former is poison. And we may be too sick to fight it off. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.